Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Future Leaders Communiques podcast. It is guest edited and produced by medical students. I am Dalia Abu Ghazali, a second year medical student from Griffith University, and I have produced this episode with the support of the Communiques team. The Communiques develops and produces educational publications on coroner's cases with the aim of encouraging action that can be taken by healthcare practitioners to prevent future adversities. In this episode, I revisit a previously published communique's edition called Blind Obedience and examine it from a medical student's lens. The goal of this episode is to dissect medical protocols. What are they? How do we use them? And are there times that following a protocol may not be the right thing to do? Now, without further ado, let's get into the case. Mr. S was a 64-year-old farmer who was thrown from his horse at approximately 5 p.m. on a weekday in December 2009. He was transported to a tertiary hospital via helicopter. In the hospital, a CT scan of his abdomen and pelvis revealed a comminuted right pelvic fracture with the whole of the acetabulum shattered and a small retroperitoneal hematoma. His hemoglobin was 126 grams per liter and he was deemed hemodynamically stable by the admitting orthopedic registrar. On ward round the following day, the orthopedic team reviewed Mr. S and anticoagulation was requested and I quote here, as per pelvic protocol. The prescribing intern felt quite anxious as she had not seen or used this protocol before. The ward pharmacist was enlisted and together they checked the protocol and medication dose calculations. Inoxaparin 100 mg twice daily was prescribed to start in 48 hours as per protocol. The following 48 hours were uneventful and the anticoagulant was administered as charted. I invite you to pause the podcast here and think about this question. What else could have been done about the feeling of anxiety the intern experienced? On the afternoon of the next day, Mr. S clinically deteriorated. A resident or registrar was not called to review the patient despite family concerns. The family reported that Mr. S was extremely pale, perspiring profusely and clammy. His skin smelled acidic and he was very agitated. I invite you to pause again and ask, why wasn't a more senior doctor consulted or called? And what factors contribute to healthcare professionals overlooking the concerns of the patient's families? Or, as some family members may say, being ignored. That evening, Mr. S suffered an asystolic cardiac arrest and was successfully resuscitated after 20 minutes of downtime. A post-arrest CT revealed a large retroperitoneal hematoma with signs of active bleeding. Mr. S deteriorated further from his injuries and died in the intensive care unit. An autopsy was conducted. The cause of death was hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy complicating cardiac arrest, 
due to retroperitoneal and pelvic hemorrhage, complicating pelvic fractures. Coroner's investigation concluded with the finding that the dose of enoxaparin, which was prescribed to Mr. S, probably led to the fatal bleed. There was no criticism of the intern who followed the protocol correctly. The coroner considered the hospital had a flawed protocol. Specifically, the protocol did not seem to account for and include critical situations whereby anticoagulants can pose a risk. This results in therapeutic anticoagulation being prescribed in the setting of a significant pelvic fracture. This case is one that ends very sadly, and one where strictly adhering to a protocol without question has resulted in the death of the patient. To understand what went wrong, I wanted to delve into what is a medical protocol. I asked a few medical students at Australian universities to tell me what they think a protocol is about. This was their response. It's a step-by-step instruction on how to approach scenarios. Uh, I would say it's a systematic approach to providing treatment or management. To me, a protocol provides like a set of guidelines, which is founded on evidence-based medicine and can provide like a foundation for clinical decision-making. I guess it keeps you accountable. So I would say protocols are like a uniform way of managing patients that doctors should probably refer to. All of the students' comments reiterate the necessity for a protocol. In fact, the emergence of the use of protocols in healthcare settings has been a groundbreaking transformation in the delivery of healthcare. In the late 20th century, after the patient's rights movement, and at a time when hospitals were expanding, the expectation placed on healthcare providers dramatically increased. One response from healthcare providers was to find a way to upskill and support decision-making of their junior doctors, given the limited availability of a senior medical specialist. Standardized written instructions from consultants to junior doctors sounded like the way to go. The advantages of protocols is why we still have them today. They allow the knowledge and experience of senior doctors to be passed on to junior doctors and thus optimizes healthcare provision. Protocols can also offer clear plans in states of emergency so that crucial steps in the treatment and management of patients are not missed. To junior doctors, the protocol has become a document of reassurance. When in doubt, refer to the protocol because in simple terms, the protocol protects both the doctor and the patient. The origins of the kind of protocols we use in healthcare today actually come from the aviation industry. In 1934, the Boeing Model 299 crashed despite highly experienced crew operating the aircraft. The cause appeared to be the crew forgetting a basic procedural step of unlocking the elevator flight surface. Protocols were subsequently introduced into the aviation industry and then later into the medical field and represent a promising way by which human error can be minimized. Another definition from an article published by the Royal College of Nursing Institute in London reiterates the student's understanding the definition of protocol being 
an agreement to a particular sequence of activities that assist healthcare workers to respond consistently in complex areas of clinical practice. I thought it was noteworthy that the word assist was used in this definition and not a more authoritative word like determine or dictate. It reinforces the idea that protocols aren't absolute but rather flexible to allow room for the clinical reasoning of healthcare practitioners. Perhaps this is where the medical field has gone too far in its adoption of protocols compared to the aviation industry. We have forgotten that humans aren't as uniform as aircrafts and that there exists normal variations in the human body and pathologies that can't be addressed in every protocol. Protocols shouldn't be used like the instruction book we get from IKEA on how to put together a table, but rather in a fashion that incorporates our reasoning, reflection, previous experience, our peers' involvement and the patient-specific medical situation. In Mr. S's case, the protocol was flawed, which should have raised some eyebrows or elicited some form of discussion. Even if the protocol was not flawed, there seems to be a lack of acknowledgement that a protocol can't be applicable to all clinical scenarios and that healthcare practitioners don't have to always adhere to them. This makes me wonder, are we training the new generation of doctors to become protocol readers rather than critical thinkers? Moving forward, how do we benefit from a protocol but at the same time avoid the pitfalls evident in Mr. S's case? The responsibility is a joint one. It falls on the hospital and the medical staff. For one, the hospital must review and monitor its protocols. Secondly, junior doctors should always consult their peers and supervising senior medical staff when specific concerns pop up. While it's true that the purpose of a protocol was to better equip the less experienced junior doctors, it doesn't mean that it can replace a senior doctor who should always be available to support patient care. And it never means that we can't question and act upon our questions. I hope you found this podcast a valuable learning experience. More information is available on the Communicase website. I am Dahlia Abukazale, the guest editor and the narrator of this episode.